Welcome to the Wild Radio KBS The Sweater Vests. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hanji. And we will be your hosts for this hour. Well, Jeff, it's Friday, and that means, as always, I'm amped about Watts Current in energy. There's a lot of powerful sentiment from me as well. Yes, Jeff, this week we'll talk a little bit about the uh, President Trump's first State of the Union address and what that means for the uh, future of energy in our country, as well as uh, uh, maybe a little bit about California and can we, can we peer into a musky corner? Indeed. We'll also talk with one terrific Lou Fulton about the magical world of autonomous vehicles. All that and more when we return on Watts Radio. So, stay with us.
Watts Radio, home of the Choco Tacos. Yes, Jeff, it is Friday, and that means it's time for us to talk about Watts Current in energy. So, what's going on in the world of energy? I hear that we have a, a, a commander-in-chief um, that knows a lot about climate change. Well put, Jeff. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. Yes, uh, President Donald Trump, uh, Trump, Trump, uh, excuse me. Uh, gave his first uh, State of the Union address this week, and um, among other uh, notable things, he was also talking about how we've ended our war on American energy, and we're now promoting the hydrogen bomb. Beautiful, clean coal. Earlier this week, Trump was also found saying, well, you see, there's cooling and there's heating. I mean, look, it used to not be climate change. It used to be global warming. That wasn't working too well because it was getting too cold all over the place. Yes, and uh, I do not like them with green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like my climate change. Uh, I, I don't know, actually, I'm sorry. I just went into a, a like a, a acid- Rhyming I, couplets. I went into there. an acid-induced haze, just like, uh, just like Dr. Seuss. Um, no, uh, you know, the White House, of course, is always in the news these days for its aggressive actions to kind of um, confront, overturn, uh, go to war against Obama's legacy um, of potentially, you know, shifting ground on, on uh, federal action towards addressing climate change. And, and um, you know, I think there's been no bigger sign to this than the consistent budget proposals that we've seen coming out of the White House, um, both last year in his first budget proposal, as well as this a week ago here um, in, uh, you know, some leaks of his next year year's budget proposal where the White House is proposing a 72 percent reduction in um, funding for the Department of Energy's uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy measures. Um, these include uh, uh, programs to encourage people to put solar panels on their homes, um, to improve the efficiency of solar technologies and reduce the energy consumption of appliances, all things that are generally unpopular. Yeah. I mean, this is all part of uh, Donald Trump's war to make coal clean and important again, um, because that's exactly what we need right now. Um, it's It's been shown that clean energy jobs are far greater and employ a larger portion of the economy than uh, coal does. Um, and every day it's becoming more and more and more jobs are available in the clean energy world. And uh you know, that, that really goes a lot of Trump's wonderful campaign rhetoric about bringing jobs to America. But, mm. you know, it's always fun calling out people's hypocrisy. Mm, Jeff, hypocrisy. Mm. Mm, God, it smells so good. You know, so, Jeff, I know we talk a lot about this, though. I mean, well, while, this, while at the federal level we're seeing this abdication of responsibility with respect to addressing the principal uh, environmental challenge of our time, a.k.a. climate change, uh, states— 
are becoming the laboratory of leadership. And I'm not just talking about California. Not just California. No, Arizona um, has set some of the most ambitious clean energy targets in the country. And so Arizona is not exactly like a, a bastion of liberalism like California often is. So it's important to see things coming out of states other than California. America's toughest sheriff, Sheriff Joe Arpaio from Arizona. Yeah, that's true. And what we're now seeing is that Arizona is really into energy storage. They've set a 3,000 megawatt hour storage target by 2030, which sounds like a fair amount. Um, we've been getting some, you know, in the in the hundred of megawatt hour uh, storage projects getting built. Um, but these these are these this is pretty big. Yeah, just to put that in perspective, it's double what California has for their energy storage mandate, although it is a little more time. It's it's double the amount. True. Although California on the storage side has been taking more of an approach of funding the installations as opposed to mandating a capacity. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a different approach. We'll still probably see a lot more storage deployed in California because it is California after all, but it's great when other places take initiatives. And Arizona is also aiming to have an 80% renewable by 2050 target, which is awesome. Um, some states have been floating targets of 100% renewables by 2050, but you know, 80% is pretty awesome, especially because no one's gotten anywhere near that level yet. So we'll see what that looks like um, as, as time goes on. Indeed. Yeah. And I know 80%, you know, it's not 100%. But at the same time, considering that, you know, um, I, 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 you know, we, you look at the current power mix in states like Arizona, where there is still a lot of coal in the grid. In fact, that's actually where we get a lot of our coal power um, in California actually comes from Arizona's grid. Um, uh, increasing renewable generation 80% in that grid um, makes a big, big, big difference um, because of uh, where they are. Um, yes, Jeff. Well, uh, let's let's uh, let's move on. And talk a little bit about you know something else that's fun. Um, wait, oh, oh, we were already talking about climate change. Dang. Okay, let's just keep talking about climate change. So, yeah, uh, I, I guess a fun thing in the realm of climate change and electricity is Harley-Davidson, known for their rip-roaring vehicles that probably, uh, you know, emit a fair amount, they've decided that they are going to become the de facto all-electric motorcycle company in the world. Um, they are going to have a new electric motorcycle that's all-electric that's going to hit the market in 18 months. Um, this is what they're saying. And yeah, they're, they're going to have a 45% growth in electric motorcycles by 2020. And they're going to spend somewhere between 25 to 50 million to try and make this dream a reality. Yeah, so um, the Harley electric motorcycle, which is cool, and, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it's a cool thing. This is, so the bike they, they debuted, actually, they debuted the same bike um, as a prototype. They made one of them um, a couple years ago for CES, actually, this car, this bike. And uh, then they sat on it for a couple years and didn't do anything else on it, and now they say they're making a big move on it. But coincidentally, this also came only... Um, uh, a couple days after the news hit that they were cutting the workforce at their big factory um, in in Midwest down by over half and that they're having very, very disappointing sales figures and having layoffs across the country or company. So um, I think, you know, this is a little bit of them trying to kind of spin the news cycle in another way. And I question 
um, their commitment to uh, an electric motorcycle. Uh, and there are some, some other um, disruptive competitors. The Tesla of electric motorcycles is also based um, in California here, um, just down the coast from, from Tesla in Scotts Valley, California. That's called Zero. And uh, they're making a lot of really interesting inroads into electric motorcycles. But as always, here at Watts Radio, we're trying to make EVs sexy. Hashtag make EVs sexy. And so, you know, getting new entrants into the electric vehicle space, even when vehicles means motorcycles, that's always a good thing. Because the more electric vehicle companies and the more EV models offered, the better we all will end up being. Ooh, ooh, Jeff, I got an idea. So, you know, the motorcycle jackets, right? The leather vests that the motorcyclists wear? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, now you can have ones that say um, EMC. Oh. As opposed to? MC from Motorcycle Club. Oh. Yeah, that, that sounds like just a swell idea. Moving on. So mm. the Department of Defense, you know, uh, <laughs> tasked with making America safe. I making guess. America safe again. Making America safe again. Um, so increasingly, they've released reports that show that climate change is a real threat to America's uh, safety and security. Um, so a recent report came out. Um, that shows that uh, climate change is already impacting national security. 50% of U.S. military bases worldwide have experienced the impacts of climate change and extreme weather. So this was um, showcased in a new Pentagon survey. Um, the assessment was conducted under the Obama administration, so you know that it's it's okay to, for them to talk about climate change. Um, and it was released to Congress, and it found that nearly half of the 1,700 sites surveyed had reported uh, damage from climate change-related risk factors which included flooding, extreme temperatures, um, drought, and wildfire. And so climate change isn't just temperatures that are hot. It includes temperatures that are cold, like the polar vortexes that we have seen on the East Coast. Um, and then earlier this month, the Pentagon released its new National Defense Strategy, or NDS, which uh, broke from Obama era policy in the fact that we weren't allowed to mention climate change anywhere. And so that largely just uh, goes to evidence the fact that climate change impacts are mostly in your mind. Because? Because they're all about how you look at things. I mean, look, you know, in, in one year we were like, oh, climate change is affecting everything. And the next year the government's like, oh, climate change, it doesn't even exist. Yeah. Um, which I think says more about the political winds of being able to uh, release reports that say kind of what you want. Yeah, so le actually, I'm sorry. I messed up the lessons. The lessons are don't read government reports. Is that what it was? Oh, darn it. I missed it again. Hey, Jeff, let's talk about California. It's less depressing. Let's talk about California. So California, recently in the news cycle, has decided to up their zero-emission vehicle goals. Um, so Jerry Brown, who is going to be uh, leaving office here in um, the end of the year, um, so his spot's opening, but before he goes, he wants his a spot is opening. His spot, <laughs> his spot is opening. So uh, if you if you want a spot as a governor in California, so when the music stops, make sure you sit in that chair. Okay, <laughs> if you don't catch the right chair when the music stops, you don't get to be governor. Sorry. Right. So Jerry Brown's spot will be opening at the end of the year. So before he opens that sweet sweet spot. Um, he's really trying to go out with a bang and push as aggressively as he can on some of his uh, climate change actions. He wants to push very he wants to push very heavily to be remembered for some of Arnold Schwarzenegger's signature climate change actions. Hashtag governor. Yeah. So he just signed an executive order that aims to put five million zero emission cars on the state's roads by 2030. Um, and so that also includes two and a half billion with a B uh, dollars for various incentives and in infrastructure. 
And wait, 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 five million. Is that is that a lot? Five million zero emission vehicles. So California right now has about a little under fifteen million automobiles on the road today that are registered. So five million's pretty good. That's like a thirty three percent of vehicles um, on the road. That's that's awesome. And the only way you get to uh, five million by twenty thirty is if you have pretty aggressive sale rates, which means that most new cars or at least a good chunk of them, start looking like zero-emission vehicles around that time frame. Um, so I, I hear Hanji typing up a storm over here. <laughs> you know, I'm always looking at things. No, uh, uh, I, 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 I just find it pretty funny because, um, you know, we just we, we, we do spend a lot of time on, in California on trying to get more zero-emission vehicles into the market, which I think in the long run will help us is a key thing to helping achieve some of our larger climate change goals. But it's interesting because instead of taking policy measures to actually achieve our climate change goals, what we do is often promote technology adoption, which may or may not be very effective. Yeah, it's it's a question. But um, so, so this aggressive, I guess, uh, executive order for more zero emission vehicles, um, how does that compare to what California previously was doing? Well, in the midterm review, of uh, California's existing uh, zero emission vehicle programs. Um, it was anticipated that California would have around 1.2, maybe 1.5 million zero emission vehicles by 2025. So this is a fair increase. Uh, however, in the scoping plan, uh, which is California's goal to get to a 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions uh, from 1990 levels by 2030, um, that called for around 4 million zero emission vehicles by 2030. So this is really just the governor signing an executive order to do what pretty much we kind of think in California has to get done to achieve California's greenhouse gas emission reduction goals. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's always great to have one more piece of uh, mm, regulation policy in place to, um, you know, try and try and get us to some sort of meaningful action on climate change. And, and you know, speaking of meaningful actions, um, if you feel so inclined, you know, uh, uh, you might you might reach you might look into um, uh, uh, buying a cleaner car because that 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 would be cool. Buy buy a car that's more efficient. If one would like to take great action on climate change, a cleaner car is maybe not a bad place to start. Not a bad place. And speaking of that, um, you know, at the at the at the federal back at the federal government, na 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 na. Yeah, they they have a policy called the um, called the the. Cafe Parisan? No, just cafe. It's a, the corporate average fuel economy standard. And that's actually not the EPA. But anyway, they, they call them morbid source standards. But they, they, so they regulate how much emissions come out of your tailpipe, including greenhouse gases. And they do that by way of thinking about how efficient your car is. Now, this is a really important thing because for a long time, these rules were really flat. And cars in this country, uh, while getting faster and sexier, were not actually uh, getting more miles per gallon. Um, Obama, uh, the Rock uh, Obama, uh, Barack the Rock Obama, um, he uh, he he changed all that uh, by setting some really aggressive targets for fuel economy and the light duty feet. And so, part of setting the aggressive fuel economy standards, uh, it was based or modeled on California's policy. So California does this thing because it's California, so of course it always does things. But California does this thing where it sets vehicle standards, and because the California market for automobiles is so large, um, it forces 
automobile manufacturers into the situation where to comply with California standards, they can either produce two vehicles, one that works for everybody else and one that works for California, or often, because economies of scale work out beneficially, they can produce one vehicle that ends up being at California's standards. So California always has this thing where they like to set aggressive standards and then try and push their standards across the rest of the US. And so because of that, the federal government, under the Obama administration, was looking to try and harmonize some of these standards so that automotive manufacturers would be relatively happy, California would be relatively happy, and everyone would end up winning. Anyway, I mean, the short story long here is that, of course, Trump comes into office and says, hey, why do we have all these big rules for trying to make cars more efficient? Let's let everybody do what they want. And uh, California says, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not that's quite that's not going to happen. And so uh, currently, because California gets a special waiver under the Clean Air Act to set some of its own vehicle emission standards, the EPA is going to have to negotiate basically with California in order to uh, relax any standards for emissions at the federal level. And so um, the, the the thing here is that uh, you know that we thought this was all settled before Trump took office. Trump, uh, as soon as he took office, reopened the issue, and now we're hearing that on April first. Um, uh, the EPA is going to have to uh, uh, decide what it's going to do. It's basically going to have to um, propose a new rule, uh, and it's going to have to put that out there for public comment. Um, so we'll see whatever they say they're going to do first, and then, of course, we'll, we'll do what we normally do, which is take it up in the courts. And, yeah, you will be able to look forward to all sorts of exciting legal action in the very near future against mm. the EPA, of course. Mm. Excitement. Wait, Jeff, do you? Ah, Elon Musk. Ah, yes, Elon. America's favorite superhero. So, uh, what what Musk? I believe. This week, well, Jeff, I'm glad you asked. Um, you know, I, I caught one little news snippet that I really enjoyed. So, um, you know, uh, Steve Wozniak, who was one of the founders of Apple Computer and is credited with inventing the personal computer, um, was at a technology conference in Norway this week, uh, where or in Stockholm, sorry, and he. Uh, um, I uh, shouldn't apologize, actually, I was right. Uh, where he um, uh, uh, was talking about his feelings about Tesla. And he says, you know, I like the Tesla cars and all, but now, you know, I don't believe anything Elon Musk or Tesla says. Um, he, he said, uh, speaking of Elon, uh, what he says, can you really believe in him? Is he just a good salesman like Jobs may not be there in the end? Uh, so uh, uh, Steve had some pretty harsh things to say, and I, I can't, I, you know, I don't quite uh, disagree because it seems like Elon increasingly is uh, becoming um, a hype salesman. Yeah, I mean, we saw that actually with uh, the Boring Company recently um, announcing that flamethrowers, terrible idea, no one should want them, and then produced a bunch that they were selling at five hundred bucks a pop. So they've uh, they, they've they've raised some a couple million they dollars sold in 10, sales. Ten thousand flamethrowers, Jeff. Ten thousand flamethrowers they sold. That's that's a lot of flamethrowers. So usually when we think of flamethrowers, we think of large quantities of flames spewing out, but these are more kind of like torches. Uh, there's a statement, I believe, from Musk that said, if we kept the flame under 10 feet in length, we wouldn't have to deal with a bunch of regulations. So it's really just kind of like a, it looks like a cooler, larger butane torch. 
yeah. So at any rate, um, Elon, you know, with the, from from the um, uh, expected production of Model Three, which was supposed to be at something like I don't know five thousand vehicles a week already or something, um, to the you know Tesla Semi, uh, to the uh, fully self-driving Level Four, uh, you know uh, autopilot features, um, to now the Boring Company. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of promise and a lot of underdeliver. So um, at some point, you think this is going to catch up with it? Maybe not. Um, we shall see. But uh, you know, last week. Jeff, I brought up uh, in the musky corner this uh, research article I read about um, ranking all the automakers on who was ahead in self-driving technology. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. I, I do remember that. And Tesla was dead last. Right. They were. Um, in, out of 19 major automotive technology companies, um, Tesla ranked 19th in on a scale of both um, uh, demonstrated achievements and uh, stated goals for uh, uh, autom- autom- automated and connected vehicle development, um, right next to Apple, actually. Uh, and, and here's another uh, piece of information that's come out recently, some data that might um, go to support this. Uh, in Last year, uh, Tesla said it logged... Um, zero uh, automated uh, autonomous vehicle testing miles under its autonomous vehicle testing permit within the state of California. Um, so uh, in the state of California, the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, requires all the companies that want to test their um, a- 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 autonomous cars on the public roads uh, to get a permit, basically. And the major, some of the big players like Waymo um, and GM have reported, they've reported hundreds of thousands of um, miles logged under this program um, each year. And uh, it's a really interesting data set because it tells us also when the uh, automated vehicle technology, when the automated vehicle systems engage and disengage, um, when they kind of get confused, so to speak. Uh, and, and Tesla in 2016 um, was one of the first, or sorry, Tesla a couple years ago actually was one of the first companies to get a permit to do on-road testing on public roads um, and logged a few hundred miles when they were uh, filming some promotional videos a couple years ago. Um, but since then, at least in the last intervening year, did not say uh, log a single mile under the permit, um, instead preferring to log any testing miles on um, private roads. So anyway, they're just being very opaque uh, and won't really uh, reveal what they're doing. And meanwhile, uh, similar to that, Waymo, which is Google, Google's uh, self-driving car entity, or formerly Google's self-driving car entity, uh, they they have 600 self-driving Pacificas already in their test cities, and they have announced that they're going to be expanding that to uh, thousand, several thousand over the next year-ish territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's huge. So um, you know, Tesla, who might have once been in the lead with millions of miles of self-driving semi-autonomous vehicle data is now maybe not everybody's favorite child anymore. Nope. Follow me behind. Yeah. And uh, just another one, just a tidbit, Jeff, that GM is uh, actually testing now in California some of the their Chevy Bolt um, with an autonomous driving feature. And they're actually redesigned cabins where they don't have driver controls. So they don't even have a steering wheel. Um, these are cars that are built to be fully automated and have no driver interface. And you know what they say, the future is here today. So on that note, I think we're going to play some really fine listening music for you.
billionaires' private planes, they're tricking out their jumbo jets. It's basically an open canvas for us to create whatever type of interior that they want. Ah, yes, the lifestyles of the rich, Trump, and famous. I like it, Jeff. You know, I want to be rich and have a high carbon intensity. It's a dream. Uh, it's the dream for all of us, I think. So, Jeff, yeah, we are talking about um, our, our our President Trump, who, uh, you know, has been fond of visiting some of his own um, somewhat gaudy real estate properties since he was elected as our uh, uh, commander in chief. And, and, and chief among those properties is what he calls the Winter White House, Mar-a-Lago, uh, a, a sprawling um, resort in Florida. And beyond, you know, the the questioning of why he keeps traveling down to the place he actually wants to be, as opposed to in Washington, D.C., doing, you know, politics and that sort of thing, running the country, theoretically, um, he's also making a lot of unnecessary trips that release carbon dioxide. And so being the young and uh, witty individuals that like to calculate things, we've decided to calculate how much each one of these trips ends up emitting in terms of carbon dioxide. And so I, for one, expected a lot. We often hear that, you know, air travel is unbelievably carbon intensive. It emits a lot of emissions. And so we calculated some things. So uh, we looked at some jet fuel. We looked at some planes and aerodynamics and rivets and things. No, we didn't. We, we've spent months running computational fluid dynamic simulations just to get this information. Now, so in fact, uh, we found some emission factors based on similar airplanes. So we looked at 747s. We assume that Trump and his entire staff end up using about three airplanes. Um, it turns out that each airplane um, ends up emitting around... 50 30. tons, right? It was about 50 tons. At any rate, Jeff, how many dinos had to die? Come on, just tell me how many dinos had so to die. So we, we plugged all of this into our dinosaur calculator, and it's only about 5,000 dinosaurs. Wait, 5,000 baby brontosaurus? I mean, that doesn't sound like very little. I mean, that sounds like more dinosaurs than I can conceive of easily. I mean, like, I, I don't know if I could picture 5,000 baby dinosaurs. Yeah, so for, so for Trump to fly tomorrow logo, we would have had to have created 5,000 brontosauruses and then promptly killed them and turned all of their existing hydrocarbon body mass into fuel for Trump to fly tomorrow mm. logo. When you really put it in that perspective, it makes you wonder, is it worth it? Yeah, you know, another thing that I was looking up here, so, you know, uh, not only has his travel expenses been about double um, what it what uh, Barack Obama's were for the entirety of his presidency, um, about a million dollars a month. I think uh, Trump's on pace for a little over $2 million a month right now. Um, you know, uh, he plays a lot of golf, uh, supposedly, although he won't confirm or deny that he plays the golf, except for that he is the best golfer. Um, I, I did a little look up on this. You know, golf courses are uh, a very carbon-intensive thing um, uh, to to manage. And um, on the order of 30,000 tons of uh, uh, CO2 uh, for an 18-hole golf course. Wait, 30,000 tons? 30,000 tons of CO2. That sounds like a lot more than Trump's air travel. It's true. It's true. And so depending on how many people are actually playing golf at that course, um, which, you know, a lot of golf courses don't have very high throughput, um, the actual in carbon footprint of a round of golf um, can be quite substantial, higher than, in fact, taking like a, let's say, cross-country round trip by car. Wow. But so what about all the grasses and turf grasses that you 
install into these golf courses that act as carbon sinks. Yeah, so there's actually been a lot of interesting research on that, and it turns out that the fertilizing and, and management practices for the golf courses tend to eat up any type of carbon sink safe uh, uh, carbon sinks. So, um, and also the uh, transformation of making the golf course in the first place uh, is not uh, particularly low carbon. At any rate, um, you know, I was trying to just figure out if that was a big thing. Uh, you know, probably not. But just in case you're interested, um, every time uh, you do play a round of 18 hole golf, um, you are uh, you are probably responsible for one to two tons of CO2 emissions just for that golf course. Wow, this makes it seem like golf is literally Satan's game. <laughs> I guess on that dreadful note, um, we'll have to play some uh, listening tunes, Jeff. Yeah, we'll play some fine listening tunes for all of you. And when we return, we'll talk to a young Lou Fulton about autonomy.
I'm Lou Fulton. I am a director of the Sustainable Transportation Energy Pathways Program uh, in the Institute of Transportation Studies at Davis, UC Davis. It's a mouthful. Uh, we do um, modeling and scenarios of future transportation and energy systems, and we tend to focus on how to become more sustainable, and that's things like getting to very low levels of CO2 emissions, but we also care about uh, traffic and, and livable cities and, and all kinds of stuff around transportation, and there sure are a lot of different issues. Uh, Lou, it's great to have you here. We end up hearing a lot of talk about it, but there's this, a lot of talk around automated vehicles. Sure. Generally, I'm of the personal opinion that automation with respect to driver, driver assists that go to the point where you are basically relieved of command, sir, are very near to market, much nearer, I think, than we probably think they are. Unless we're wrong. I go back and forth. From, yeah. It depends what is the last thing I read. But, yeah, it's yeah. really hard to tell. Yeah, but, I mean, you could go out right now. If you had an, if you had money to spend and you wanted it, you could go buy a car, right, mm. that will basically allow you yeah. to, at your own peril, yeah. sleep at the wheel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and drive itself, quite, quite, quite frankly, drive itself around. And so, you know, to think, like, that's going to be quick to bring that just a little bit better and a long time to make it perfect. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and not to mention that there's going to be ten years, or more, where it, those vehicles have to coexist with driver-driven vehicles, and we don't talk much about that transition. But that's going to be interesting. But we don't spend much time talking about how we're going to plan for uh, a mass transit future for mm. this like mm. future where we have a lot of right away for mass transit because we have all these people that want to travel in through the city center. Right. You know, we're envisioning it now that everybody's still driving. We're just planning for this driving future. What 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 happened? Why yeah. did mass transit just lose the conversation even yeah. as like an option for a mobility future? Well, I mean, I think uh, it depends a lot on where, but um, and I think Europe is a very different. There's a very different you know storyline than than the United States. But let's face it, in the United States. With a few exceptions, you know, a few downtown areas of big cities, transit is not relevant. And uh, you got a lot of empty buses running around. Um, you don't have a lot of rail in most places. And it's only a couple of percent of mode share, usually. And so how do you grow that? I, I really don't know. And um, what I think in the new mobility world, the idea is that uh, we start to be more creative and we start doing things like on-demand microtransit. So uh, we have an eight-seater that runs around and picks you up. And it's the same thing. It's door-to-door service, but you're willing to you know go a little out of your way to, as they pick other people up. But it's inexpensive and it is pretty space efficient, pretty road efficient. I wonder, again, how many people are going to be willing to do that compared to the private door-to-door service car. But I think that kind of future public transport is what many people are are envisioning. Why is this new technology-enabled sharing so much better? Or why is this going to, like, why is this now going to be the thing that saves us where it's been the way it was before? Well, I think, uh, first of all, that we're, there's, for those of us who, who pay attention to this, there is this... Um, kind of irrational exuberance going on that this will save us, and I'm not sure it will. You know, you know what we like to do as travelers, and I think every human being fits into this. Um, we want door-to-door service. We want to get dropped off. We don't ha- want to have to worry about what happens to the car when we get dropped off. And if that turns out to be super cheap, 
that's wonderful. And so that is actually where this all might may go. And it sounds great, but we can't all do that. It's the same old problem. We're going to just have gridlock if everybody's in their own vehicle getting dropped off door to door. Um, but that that's the, the hope, is that basically the app-based system, you call the vehicle, it comes, so therefore it actually is traveling a little bit more to get to you than, than the car in your driveway. And then it takes you exactly where you want to go, drops you off. So now we're walking even less, right? We used to walk from the parking lot to the to the door. We don't even have to do that now. And uh, then if, well, if it's an Uber with a driver, uh, it, it goes off and does something else. You don't have to think about it. And I think that is really appealing. I mean, taxis have always done that. But now you can, you just press the button. It's just so, so easy. And I was, uh, last year I took a, a number of trips around the world. I was able to use Uber in a number of countries, and I admit it was wonderful. You just didn't have to think much. You just press that button, and, and someone comes. Um, but uh, if it if we get to automated vehicles, so we, we if we get to driverless cars, this stuff is going to actually get pretty cheap because the cost of the driver is more than half of what we're paying for when we take one of these trips. And uh, I I wonder what happens if we can you know right now you might pay fifteen dollars or something to take an Uber across San Francisco. What if that's only $3? I, I just wonder if anybody's going to ride BART anymore, you know? So mm-hmm. that's the long-term picture that has, has, you know, it's really attractive, but you just wonder, how is the city going to survive that? So I, I think when it comes to envisioning stuff with, you know, automation and on-demand services, we're both maybe a little too creative and a little not creative enough when it comes to things. So when we think of Uber, that's automated. We, we still think that we're primarily going to be using our existing roadways and that highway design and street design and city design is going to pretty much be what it is right now. Mm. But with automation, you get a whole slew of new features and abilities to recognize things much more rapidly and much better than human drivers theoretically can. So what does that mean for redesign of our built environment and our landscapes? Are we still going to be large arterial roads and highway systems, or do you start getting more mixed-use areas and more pedestrian roadways? Well, I mean, I think ultimately we have to make that choice. You know, it's not like it's going to automatically go one way or another, but we would have an opportunity to invest, and it means we have to find the money to invest to repurpose things. Things to uh, rip things down. And, you know, if nothing else, if we go down this pathway toward a shared mobility future and, and I mean, there are people who think we're going to start giving up our own cars and that by 2030 or 2040, we, you know, we just, we just basically are surviving much, much more on uh, on-demand mobility commercial services and the number of cars goes way down. Uh, we need a lot less parking. And, you know, L.A. is something like 35 percent uh, or 40 percent parking. You know, it's it's crazy how much land is. And in many cities, it's like that. So an enormous opportunity to repurpose. And there are great movements going on already in terms of complete streets. You, you narrow it. You, narrow, you get rid of a lane. You you find lots of interesting things to do. You put in the bike lanes. You put in street furniture. You, you, you find great things to do with your streets. And I hope that that really catches on. But at the same time, we may we may find that we want even more road space for all the extra travel that people are doing in these cars. I'm not sure. You were saying earlier that this automated vehicle revolution is going to be it's going to deliver this cheap trip, um, where you know now at the margin, paying for using the car is going to be really cheap compared to the cost of just owning a car every month that you sit on. Um, you know, like a lot of people, you know, they 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 might 
a lot of people who buy new cars actually don't put very many miles on them. Yeah. And they sit on cars that have a few thousand miles a year. And the per mile cost of owning that car is obscene. I mean, it's several dollars actually per mile that they drive it. So um, you're saying this automated revolution cost thing. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. So, so, so as an example, okay, you know, uh, package delivery. Mm. Okay. So mm. uh, when I, I notice that in my apartment complex, as many people probably notice in their apartment complexes, more package deliveries, right? Right. And what's interesting is not just more package deliveries, but more package delivery companies and more package delivery drivers all coming with varying amounts of packages. So it's not like just one, it's not like the UPS guy now has just got this giant forklift he brings now mm-hmm. because everybody gets five packages. No, it's like 15 different random companies come. And so once we have these really cheap cars, you're like, oh, the package thing. You know, so what happens to the package delivery piece when we have all this cheap automation? Oh, it's it's simple. I mean, at that at that moment, which is like in 10 years, Amazon owns everything, and they just manage it perfectly, and we're going to be great. Mm, that's great. Yeah. No, if that doesn't happen, uh, then yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, we've got a new project with one of our researchers at, in, in our group, uh, Miguel Heyer, who um, and I'm sure other people are looking at this, but Miguel will do great looking at the net impact of us shopping online in, in a sort of a, a, a generic you know, example uh, a community situation or city situation. To what extent are we simply – replacing our car miles with delivery truck miles and uh, under what circumstances you know does it does it come out good or come out bad there is absolutely no reason to believe right now that it's going to come out good you know that we're, we're just we are just piling on the delivery vehicles out there and I you know I know for my for my own life that I you know it's a little embarrassing that there are times when I get two deliveries a day. And I'm generating a lot of VMT out there, a lot of vehicle miles traveled for for delivery trucks. And, uh, you know, I mean, I am not dry. I don't own a car. I'm an unusual uh, Californian that I don't own a car. But I'm I'm ex- causing a lot of freight truck travel out there. And I don't know exactly. But we don't have to think about it, right? We just, that part, we just, it's out happening somewhere. Somebody else is dealing with it. But I notice more and more of the traffic is trucks. Um I think uh, there there will have to be some rationalization of all that, and we're in the kind of cowboy early days. But I think also we need to think about that. And in this country, we're very timid about policies that really can change uh, the way that transportation works. And uh, again, I come back to Singapore. You know, I, I suspect a, a place like Singapore, they're probably dealing with the same thing. I suppose Amazon or something equivalent is showing up there. They'll just start charging. They'll just start charging those vehicles per mile, and, and they'll force those companies to rationalize quickly and save money. And we just don't tend to do that here. And and what worries me is that we're um, we're talking a lot of analysts and, and, and even some policymakers are talking a lot about how, well, when the automated vehicles show up, we're going to you know, we're going to have pricing that's going to make sure that they're not running around empty all the time and that, uh, you know, they're basically somehow operating in an efficient way. And we talk a lot about that, but I don't see anybody doing it. So um, we're going to have to get more serious about that. The problem, it's it's kind of one of those problems where, uh, first of all, I think people, when it comes to transportation, have a have a feeling that it should be free, at least in this country. And second of all, the minute something is free... It's very hard to go back. You know, the genie gets out of the bottle. And so one of the things people are talking about is that when you have more and more Ubers, uh, curb access becomes a bigger deal because everybody's dropping people off at the same time. And I was just in Sacramento and and looking at the Golden One Center, uh, which is the new, relatively new uh, 
uh, arena there, and they have all kinds of problems now with people showing up for the events in in Ubers and Lyfts and uh, getting dropped off. So they've set up uh, drop-off points a little further away, and they're trying to manage it. But what people talk about is that eventually those vehicles should have to pay a fee just to pick up or drop off on the curb. Let's see who does it. You know, I I think it's more likely to happen with uh, uh, commercial service applications. I think it's households that are the ones that everybody's really afraid. Who we talk another thing we talk about is not letting households have automated vehicles for whatever reason because they're going to drive them too much. Let's see who tells you know people that they can't have that. Right? That's, yeah, that part I I mean definitely. I mean obviously our inability to price roadways effectively is something that I think in the transportation sort of research is some you know something we talk a lot about. And I don't want to downplay the climate piece. I mean it's not like we we have a slam dunk to electrify everything. But yeah, totally. But all because because actually one of the biggest pieces is actually this is cargo air traffic. Mm. So huge, huge increase in this. And actually, you know, a lot of products you get on Amazon and rapid delivery are going to come by air for some portion of their tour. Mm. And that um, is huge. Mm. And I mean, you could mm. drive, that truck could drive to your house two or three times. And if you fly yep. that thing, yep. you know, for an hour or two, it blows it all out of the water. It's a huge climate impact to yep. fly things around. Yep. Flown food is, you know, hugely carbon intensive. Yep. And, and, and so this kind of low cost optimized aggregation, the Amazon-S, the Amazon, the pinnacle of Amazon logistics, where they have managed to make it cost-effective mm-hmm. for them to fly small items to you mm-hmm. within a few days mm-hmm. in, in jumbo jets, mm-hmm. just regular old jumbo jets, yep. which I think is one of the, we know, the hardest technologies probably to be really decarbonized. Yep. What are we going to, this, I feel like this is what we're going to do, though. We all are going to order, sit around and order these things. And <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, let's talk about air travel. I mean, so that's the freight side. Um, I mean, but the passenger side is 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 ten times bigger right now, and I think ultimately that one. First of all, we have to start to realize what we're doing, and even I, who tries to pay attention to this, I, I mean, I fly a lot, and I, in, at some level, I'm like trying to ignore this, right? But I recently uh, went to Saudi Arabia for a conference. And uh, they, you know, Saudi Arabia uh, gave me a business class ticket. So I took business class. And for whatever dumb reason, I decided to actually calculate my CO2 emissions from business class. I started looking around and, you know, basically it's, it's, it's up to five times more carbon intensive than economy, depending on how you look at it. But even economy is fairly carbon intensive. Uh, And so it came out to 20 tons of carbon round trip, CO2 round trip for me. Uh, the average car is only producing three or four tons a year. So one trip to Saudi Arabia was like seven times what somebody's car carbon footprint. You know, if you have an SUV and you drive a lot, it might be six or seven tons. But yeah, I, and we're not – not only that, we – that's the CO2 impact. There are plenty of studies and not enough research going into this, but that when you look at all the other high-altitude emissions that come out of an airplane, it could be double – it could have a double impact. So now we're at the 40 tons equivalent. So I don't know what to do about it, but we should at least know what we're doing. And so on the freight side, it's the same thing. It's even more removed from our minds, right? We don't have to think about it when we when we click order. Um, the only thing I can think of to start to really deal with this is we really need to start a carbon tax or something. We need to start pricing the carbon. And that'll that'll begin to have some effect. Yeah, so there's this thing about electric trucks, right? Batteries are heavy. 
And if we um, want to make an electric truck that goes a long way, then it's kind of going to have these heavy batteries in it, which maybe displace cargo. But a lot of cargo is actually not that dense, right? That like, is true. Isn't there a lot of cargo that goes around that, you know, because I see these trucks that are rolling down the freeway all the time, you know, especially like, and they don't, they're like full of lead. Right. Right? So why yeah, trucks we... can weigh out or they can cube out. And these days they cube out more. In other words, they fill up their space without filling up the weight limit. But I think truckers are a bit like us uh, car drivers. When they go out and buy that truck, they want the truck that can do everything. They don't want a, the truck that can only carry this much weight because most of the time they don't need to carry this much weight. Uh, from like a kind of a sustainable transportation, equitable development, I don't know, words. Um, have we have we entered like the dark ages of words of science words? Is I that... I am I, okay. So an optimistic moment. I think cities are great, and I think our governance of cities is, has never been better. And we have very committed people and 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 public who really want to solve problems. So as long as everybody's trying to figure out how to solve problems, that's sort of the best you can hope for. And what about the country of California? I think California continues to provide very important leadership, but it maybe doesn't provide quite as much leadership as it thinks it does. That would be my take. California, bigger and less important than it actually Something like that. I don't know. California, great country or greatest country. Right. Maybe just great. But but still, I mean, I, I, I think I think it does well. And on that note, I think we can probably wrap this interview up. So uh, thanks. thanks Thank you very much. That was fun. My family would travel down to western Kentucky where my parents were born. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered So many times that my memories are warm And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train is hauled away Well, sometimes we travel right down the Green River To the abandoned old prison down by Avery Hill Where the air smelled like snakes, we'd shoot with our pistols But empty pop bottles was all we would kill And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's gold train is all in the way. came with the world's largest shovel and they tortured the timber and stripped all the land well they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken then they rolled it all down as the progress of man and daddy won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County down by the Green River where paradise lay well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. 
Mr. Peabody's coal train is hauled it away. When I die, let my ashes float down the grain river. Let my soul roll on up to the Rochester Dam. I'll be halfway to heaven with paradise wing. Just five miles away from wherever I am. And daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River, where paradise lays. Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's cold train is all it away. Oh,